Happy Labor Day weekend. It's nice to be here, right? Awesome. Uh, my name is Amanda Neppel, and I'm the discipleship director here at Hope Des Moines. And so we say it every week that we've been praying for you, and that is so true. We uh, have been praying that... Uh, that when you come this weekend, that you would hear the word that God has for you to hear and that whatever circumstances threaten to keep you here, that God just removes them and that you would just know that coming here together to be a part of our church family is a gift that God has for us. And so I'm so glad that you have said yes to that gift today and, and made your way here on this Labor Day weekend. Thank you, guys. Um, okay, so we are continuing our sermon series, uh, Five Leaps of Faith, Radical Discipleship for Regular Christians. Did I get that right? I think so. Excellent. Good. Good start. Um, and when we hear that, this idea of being, being a radical Christian, for a lot of us that kind of stirs up some stuff, right? Because that word radical in 2016 usually means a lot of really negative things, doesn't it? Uh, I am a child of the 80s, and so I remember when radical was like a good thing, right? <laughs> Anybody else? See, look, look at how cute they are, right? I mean, little baby David Hasselhoff and Bill and Ted and be excellent to each other. Like, it doesn't really get much better than that, does it? And so uh, I just thought I'd show you those because there was a time when radical was a good thing, believe it or not. Now, you could argue, I don't know, whatever. Sometimes it's best to leave the past in the past, but uh, it's fun to kind of go back and remember some of that. So um, when we think about the word radical and we think about it particularly in the context of what it means to be a radical a disciple, or even what it means to be a regular Christian, how do those things go together at all? That seems very strange. And then when we think about it in the context of the verses that we heard read to us today in Luke chapter 10, uh, 38 through 42, we've, many of us, if you've been a Christian for very long, many of you have heard those verses about Mary and Martha, and oftentimes we tend to get a pretty narrow idea of what those verses mean. They don't sound to us at the first blush to be especially radical, but I hope that we're going to unpack that a little bit today and see how what Jesus was saying and how what Mary and Martha we're doing actually was radical discipleship in, in, in a couple of different ways. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and open them to Luke chapter 10 here. We're going to dig around here a little bit. Uh, verse 38 is where we started this morning that Teresa read for us just a little bit ago. Um, I like to kind of dig around a little bit and see whenever I'm preparing for a message, I want to look and see what's happening right before that passage. And I want to look and see what's happening right after that, because sometimes we can get a really good sense of what the author of the, of the book was intending to do just by kind of looking and getting kind of, kind of a bigger picture of what's going on. Luke, uh, the author of this gospel, just before he's talking about Mary and Martha, this is kind of a side note because I think it's really interesting, a young man had come to him and this young man said, you know, uh, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we know what Jesus said. He's, well, he kind of knew what was going on in this guy's heart, right? And so as Jesus often does when he's trying to get to the heart of the matter, if he's dealing with somebody whose heart is maybe a little bit hard, Jesus answers the question with a question right? And so he says, well, what do you think you have to do to inherit eternal life? And the man just recites what he knows, and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Cognitively, in his brain, he knew the right answer, but Jesus knew that his heart wasn't quite there yet. And so Jesus says, well, yeah, I mean, you've got it. 
But this young man was still kind of feeling this tension and kind of like, yeah, but I don't really feel anything. I don't really feel like I'm saved. And so then he's like, well, you know, who's my neighbor? Because he had this very defined view of who was in and who was out and who he needed to be generous with and who he didn't need to be generous with. And so Jesus tells him and basically then goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan and basically makes it very clear that who he thought was his neighbor is actually not his neighbor at all. Daniel, if I could get the um, description of radical up there real quick, I just wanna look at that. Um, Because we have this very kind of out there kind of negative view of what radical is, a really simple definition would be a new or different way of things from what's traditional or or ordinary, very basic and important, or having extreme political or social views not shared by most people. What Jesus did with that young man is fundamental to Christianity. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is fundamental to Christianity, but very radical to what the world says is normal, right? So Luke is setting us up here interestingly, with this story of what it is to be a Christian and to just even to follow Jesus means a radically different way of life from what the world has going on and what the world says is what we're supposed to do. So anyway, just kind of keep that in your back pocket for a second as we then go to what's going on with Mary and Martha. So Jesus and the disciples had been traveling and and they came into Bethany and Martha did what was very Uh, normal for that culture. She invited Jesus and the disciples into their home. And then once you invited someone into your home, then you were responsible for their well-being. And so she invited them into their home, and now she was responsible to, to provide them with a meal. And these are her friends. These are people she cares about very much. So I don't think it was just bologna sandwiches, right? Like, I think she was probably going to a little bit more trouble here because these were people that she cared about very much. And she's, she's making this meal, and she's working hard. And then the next thing she knows, she looks around, And Mary, her sister, who should have been in the uh, kitchen helping her, was nowhere to be found, right? And so Martha discovers that Mary is out with the men, and she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to what Jesus has to say. And then we see these words that Martha said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come help me. (laughs) Now, How many of you, when you hear that, are thinking, yeah, that honestly doesn't sound that unreasonable? Anybody? Because I know I think that a lot, right? That does not sound like an unreasonable request. The woman needs help getting dinner going, right? Okay. And so here's the thing. We all, we read that and we're like, okay, I I don't understand this, Jesus. You're going to have to work on me here to help me understand why this is a thing. And the world <laughs> nowadays, it's so bizarre. There's, this is a very polarizing scripture because there's a lot of people who really want to skewer Martha for even asking the question. They want to say that she has a hard heart. They say that uh, she was whiny or demanding or she was telling Jesus what to do. There are a lot of Martha haters out there on the internet if you start looking. <laughs> okay? There really are. And what's interesting to me is that Jesus knows when he's dealing with a hard heart. Like, you can't fool Jesus. Just the young man just a few paragraphs earlier was coming to Jesus with more of a rhetorical question, and Jesus knew it. And so he answered his question with a question. But Martha comes to Jesus, and she says, hello, can I get a little help here? 
And Jesus doesn't respond to her the way he generally responds to someone whose heart is hard. The opposite. He responds to her with kindness and compassion. And he says, Martha, you are so worried about these details. But there's only one thing to be worried about, and Mary has discovered it, and I won't take it away from her. He responds to her with kindness and compassion because here's kind of a bigger level of what's going on here in this story. And this changed everything for me, really reading this passage. There are some words that Jesus says that we will never, that are always going to be challenging. We'll never get to understand them, really. But this is one where the understanding that in their world, it was completely outside of the realm of possibility for Mary to be sitting there at Jesus' feet. Her gender meant she was not to be in that room with the men. And so she was supposed to be helping her sister. She was breaking off every uh, cultural demand that had been placed on her by sitting at Jesus' feet. And even worse, in the first century, they didn't collect knowledge for the sake of collecting knowledge. Like we all know people with like half a dozen degrees, right? And it's, it's knowledge for the sake of, of having it but Mary's situation was very different. She was sitting at the feet of her rabbi to gather this knowledge so that then she could go out as a woman and then share it with others. This, guys, was scandalous. This was very radical. And there was a huge price for Mary for making that decision, for throwing off what society thought she should do. She was an unmarried woman hanging out with all these men in the first century. There is only one thing that most people thought she was up to in that situation. And she knew it, and her sister Martha would have had to have known it. Martha would have had to have heard the things that people were saying about her sister. She would have known the things that people were saying about their family. And so while her request to Jesus may have been partly about getting help in the kitchen, I I have no doubt getting help, getting that meal ready, maybe it was. But on the other hand, maybe Martha was saying, Jesus, get her out of there. (laughs) Help me out here. You know what people are saying, Jesus. Could we just slow this talk for five minutes, right? So when we think about this story in that way, that there's this other kind of layer going on underneath there, and the very act of sitting at Jesus' feet was an act of rebellion that Mary had told the world to kiss off. (laughs) I am going to do this thing that you say I cannot do, because I know that Jesus has called me to it. And it's only when we really kind of understand it at that level, now we can start to do a little bit more honest job of applying this to our lives in 2016, because it's true, some of us are busy. There's no doubt about that, we're too busy, we don't have time for Jesus, that's, that's a real thing. But on the other hand, this idea that even just sitting at the feet of Jesus is scandalous, that throwing off society's expectations of us that's when we can really start to apply this teaching uh, to our lives. Mary had done just that. Mary had said, I don't care what you say about me. I'm going to say no to the good so that I can say yes to the best that Jesus has for me. And Martha had done the opposite. Martha had said yes to the good, and she was missing Jesus. What's really interesting to me in this, Jesus says to Martha, Mary has discovered the better part, and it will not be taken from her. The interesting thing is, Martha, in that situation, Martha was using her gifts. She was using her gifts of hospitality. 
She was loving Jesus. She was caring for Jesus and the disciples, and she was doing all of the things that good followers of Jesus are supposed to do. So she was doing a good thing. But in doing that good thing, she was missing the better thing that Jesus had for her. Jesus wasn't worried about what they were going to have for dinner. They'd figure it out. But Jesus was in the living room, right? And so even though Martha was doing a good thing, Jesus had something better. Jesus wanted to offer her the better part. And so I think that becomes really challenging for us because we're all sitting in this room here. It's Sunday morning. It's Labor Day weekend. There's a lot of different things that we could be doing, but you guys are here, right? Because you get, you know that being able to gather together is a blessing. You wouldn't miss it for the world. It's, it's what you do. It's, it's who you are. So I have a feeling there maybe are some of us here in the room who have a few things to work out, but for the most part, you guys are filling your days with good things, volunteering and caring for others, and generally speaking, filling your days with good things. But that doesn't mean that the good things that we are doing, that we're filling our time with, are actually the best things that Jesus has for us. And that is really, really challenging for many of us because we know what's going on in our life and we still kind of feel this kind of, uh, kind of tension. And maybe that's because we're hanging on so tight to the good that we haven't been able to grab a hold of the best. Um, a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, this summer, it was the Olympics. And the really cool thing about the Olympics that I really love is that for the most part, when people are watching television, then we're all kind of more or less watching the same thing. Like some, some people don't, and that's fine, no big deal. But when I was a kid, we grew up, we had four channels. I lived out in a rural area, and pretty much people watched the same thing. Like, the only pe we couldn't even have cable. The only people who had cable were the rich people who lived in town, right? And so, but for the most part, we all watched the same few channels, so we could talk about it the next day. That doesn't happen in our world anymore unless the Olympics are on, right? So that's a really cool thing about that. I love that. Uh, many of you well, will recognize this picture of Sean Johnson and... Um, so this is kind of just a funny little sidebar. I was going to show a video. Sean Johnson did this video uh, called I Am Second, and uh, you can watch it on YouTube. If, I'm not going to show it again today because I have missed one Sunday in six months, okay? I was on vacation. I worshiped somewhere else. I just didn't worship here. Well, turns out the one weekend that I was gone, John used this exact same video. So when we say to you, if you miss a weekend, you miss a lot, we're not kidding, like, you never know what you're going to miss on that one weekend. It could be a very big deal. So I'm not going to show you the video, but I do want to talk about it a little bit because I think that it fits in with this just perfectly with what we're talking about, this idea of saying no to the good so you can say yes to the best. So Sean talks in this video about the 2008 Beijing Olympics and how everyone there expected that she was going to just come home with a slew of gold medals, right? She was going to just take it all. And... Uh, that's not what, I mean, she, she got uh, four silver medals and then she did get a gold medal. But she talks about how when she's on the podium and he, he put that silver medal around her neck and said, I'm sorry, as he was doing that because everybody in the, in the world thought she was going to get the gold. And so she talks about how that experience, it, when he said that, it confirmed for her that if she wasn't a gold medal gymnast, a gold medal gymnast, but then she didn't know what, or who she was. And so that kind of totally shook up her 
foundation, and she left the Olympics then and went on to do some other things as a young woman. Uh, she was 16 during the Beijing Olympics, so she's 17, 18, 19 years old. She's coming into who she is, and everybody wants to talk about all of these different things about her, right? Like her weight or uh, other areas of her appearance, or they still want to talk about her performance or her injuries or all these different types of negative things, and she's living this kind of life with this kind of pressure, still trying to figure out who it is that she actually is. And she talks about how as she's been preparing for 2012, it's go time. It's time to figure out if this is going to happen or not. And she is at the lowest point of her life, mentally, emotionally, physically. She is a wreck. She talks about how she's not sleeping, how her hair is falling out, how she can't get through a day without breaking down in tears, like everything. She's fallen apart. And she's on the beam, and she's getting ready to practice her routine. And she says that it's at that point that she heard clear as day God say to her, you are so worried about this decision. Does that sound familiar? You are so worried about all of these things. But God said to her, I want to show you something better. I have more for you than this. Here's what blows my mind about that every time I think about it. This young woman, at that point, 20 years old, is the best of the best of the best. Like, what percentage of human beings gets to even go to the Olympics, let alone be at that level where you're in serious medal contention? Like, the best of the best. And God had given her that talent. God had made her who she was and gave her that talent to make her the best of the best of the best. And then God said, but I don't want you to do that. What? Right? Like, what is going on there? If someone tells you that they can wrap their brain around that, they are lying to you because that, that offends our sensibilities on so many levels, doesn't it? The best of the best of the best. And God says, don't do it. I have something better for you. Whoa. I don't know that we've got any Olympic athletes in here, but I know that we all have things that God has made us specifically to do that we're passionate about, that use our gifts. And some of us have found those things, and some of us are still trying to figure out. But the truth of the matter is, God is still working on us. And so how God is using us to do good things one day, maybe God wants to show us that he has a better thing for us down the road. Who, who knows? Because it's God's to give and to take away. The only way we get to even remotely come close to figuring that out is by figuring out what our priorities are, right? And who we're going to listen to and, and who gets to tell us who we actually are and what, what we're actually about. So some of us are visual learners and sometimes we just need a good uh, object lesson and so that's, that's what this is about today. I didn't make this up. Some of you have seen this before and so uh, if you have, I apologize. But these little guys, these are, these are what I like to call all of the things. <laughs> right? So there's our kids and our family. There's our job. There's the different volunteer things that we're involved in. There is, um, you know, all of the different good 
good things that we are involved in, whatever they look like for you, but for the most part, these are the good things that we fill our days with. Maybe these are even our gifts and the things that God has called us to do. And so we're setting up our life, right? And then we've got a few other things as well, and, and, and let's say that these are the expectations that other people have for us, right? Because Sean talked about the expectations that people had for her and how they tore her up, and, and uh, Mary had expectations that people had on her. She didn't meet them. They whispered about her. Martha had expectations. We all have expectations placed on us, and so we place those in there as well. And then we've got, you know, I've got a little bit, if this is a 24-hour day or a seven-day week, there's a little bit more room, and I'm feeling like maybe things just aren't quite working for me. So I think, you know, I think what I need is some God in my vase, right? And so then that's what we try to do. We try to put God in our vase, but we've got it so full of everything else that God doesn't particularly fit in there, at least not really, right? And I have a feeling there's, there's a little bit of God in there, so maybe this is going to weekend worship or maybe uh, this is midweek worship or, or however that we do it. I have a feeling there's a lot of us who are living as what we perceive to be regular Christians and we're going to church every Sunday and that's kind of how we're living it out right? And so we've got this kind of life that we've built, and we can handle uh, church on Sunday, and maybe there's not as much room for God in there as we want, but that's what we can do. And we go a very, very, very long time like this some of, some of the times, don't we? We kind of get caught up because we have to continually be imagining or thinking about what the good is that God's calling us to. So it's very easy to get complacent. And sometimes things will go a little weird and we'll think, man, if I could only shuffle around these rocks a little bit, if something would give a little bit, maybe I could get a little bit more God in there. But so oftentimes what happens is it takes kind of a radical shakeup, right, to get everything out of this vase. Not the kind of shakeup that we felt yesterday morning for some of us who felt that little thing, um, but like a major, a major shakeup oftentimes is what God will do to us and make us realize we gotta clean out this vase because we have to make room for things that we haven't been making room for and a little shakeup is not gonna make room. We have to start over. Sometimes we can do those things slowly over time, but unfortunately, it's usually a little painful right? Um, if you've been shaken up before, you know it is usually, it usually hurts a little bit, <laughs> unfortunately, but that's what God is doing to us. He's telling us that the way we've got our lives put together is not working for us, and he wants to shuffle around those rocks in our vase so that we have room for the, per the better part, the best that he's calling us to. And so <clears throat> when we start and redo this a little bit differently and we put God in there first, then we can add, we can add some of these other things. We can make room for these other things that, that God calls us to. Our family certainly is God. God is calling us to care for our family. He's calling us to give our best at work, to work as though we were uh, working for Jesus and not for people. He's calling us to kind of put all these things back together. He's calling us to trust that his grace is actually sufficient for us because so often we don't actually believe that that's true, right? We believe that the way we're building our rocks is sufficient for us, but that there's not room in there then for us to actually rest in the strength that Jesus wants 
to give us. When we say, I'm going to let you, Jesus, guide me in how I put these things in here, then the things that need to fit, fit. And the things that don't need to fit, like the expectations that people have for you, the, you know, less wonderful things that we're doing, like, you know, the time we're spending on social media or the time we're spending watching TV. Like, I'm right there with you. I spend too much time doing those things to really reorder what I'm doing would just mean that some of these things that I'm doing, they're, they're not compatible, really, with the best that God has called me to. And certainly the expectations that other people have on me, these things that I'm hanging on to so tight, these are certainly not compatible with, compatible with saying yes to the best that Jesus wants for me and that Jesus wants for each one of us. And so the question I want us to kind of just think about today as we're um, wrapping up here is I, <laughs> what's going on with your vase, right? Like what is, what is God doing with the gifts and the talents that you have been given? Are you leaning in to the truth that Jesus Grace is enough for you that he wants to let you be weak so that he can show you how strong he actually is. What's God doing to your vase? Because some of us have found the things that we're passionate about and some of us are still trying to figure it out. And too often we look to our best friend to tell us what those things might be. We look to our spouse to tell us. We look to our boss to tell us what, what it is that's going to fill us up. But none of those people can actually tell us what's going on in our vase because it truly is a deeply personal experience. And there's tension in that. And I get that. So many times we just want a clear answer. But the truth is in the world it, it really doesn't work that way, right? Because we've each been uniquely created by God with a unique purpose that he wants to give us. What's true for all of us is that his grace is enough and that in our weakness, he always shows up in strength. If there's anything that I would want you to walk out of here today, it would be walk out of here knowing that he wants to show you the better part. He wants to show you how to put these things together so that you are saying, yes to the best and leaving behind what is simply good. And the only way we do that is we look to the cross, we look to Jesus, and we breathe him in. Imagine, if you will, that Jesus is standing there and his arms are wide open and you are just going to him and you are just running to him and taking in the grace and the mercy Close your eyes if it helps you to imagine Jesus with his arms outstretched and you are just taking in all of the grace, all of the mercy, and all of the love that he has for you. Jesus has not called you to live kind of an okay life with rocks kind of shuffling around and, and you're getting through your days, but Jesus has called you to a life filled with abundance. This is what Jesus means when he says he came to give life and give it abundantly. Daniel, will you put that picture of, of Sean back up there? That picture up there in the top, when I look at that picture, the word that comes to mind to me is exquisite. I mean, it, it's just beautiful. And what's especially beautiful to me in that picture, that was uh, her floor routine. She knew before she went out and did that routine that there was no mathematical way that she was going to get a gold medal. 
and she says that she went out there then and she gave the best performance of her life. She was free. All of the expectations were gone. It already had been done. She was able to go out there and be who Jesus had made her to be with abandon. I hope your spirit feels like that. I hope you've had that experience where you know that you are living fully and completely in who God has called you to be with reckless abandon. I hope that some of you have found your sweet spot. I hope that you're trying to figure out what it is that Jesus has for you. But if you are still struggling, if you're not quite there yet, we have these roadmaps on your chair. And I, I don't know what it looks like for you. We can go back to the cross, Daniel. I don't know what that journey looks like for you. Maybe you know where it is. Maybe you've been in a life group though and then now you're still feeling like there's some new best that God has for you. Maybe you've done this and then and God has done this kind of radical shifting around of the rocks in your vase and now you feel in a lot of ways like it's time to start over. That's okay because there's a lifetime of details to fill into God's story that God has for us. I would encourage you to spend time in prayer. I would encourage you to talk to people who are a little bit further along on their journey than you spiritually speaking and 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 to help you see what God is calling you to what is the best that God wants for you right now and if you still need help nothing would make me happier than to spend some time talking with you and trying to kind of determine what that best is for you it's not so important right now that you know exactly what it is the important thing is that you believe without a shadow of a doubt that God has a better part for you. God has a best that God wants to give you. That's what I want you to know as you walk out of here today. It's expensive sometimes. It was expensive for Mary. It was certainly expensive for Jesus, right? Because the best of Jesus was his very life that he gave for us. That was the best. He could have said yes to some other really good things, but he said yes to the best. And for him, that was pouring his life out so that he could stand there with outstretched arms and that we could run to him. We could breathe in everything that he is and everything that he's done for us and everything that we have been called through him to be. That's what uh, we're going to celebrate this morning uh, here as we prepare our hearts for communion, the best that Jesus gave for us.